Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes. Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. <laughs> Instacart for the win. Week by week, as we really get into the weeds on this case, the image of what happened on December 22, 2012 becomes clearer and clearer. As we continue to move forward, you're going to witness a lot of what we just did over the last few weeks. I display the evidence to you, I break it down and give my analysis here on the show, and then I'll be bringing in more experts, people like Jim Clementi, to check my findings and provide their own expert opinions. Our goal here is plain and simple, to find the truth. And the truth will always lie in the details of any crime scene and investigation. I've said it before and I'll say it again. If a case is solid and the right person was convicted, then time, technology, and attention to detail will always make the prosecution's case stronger. But in this case, we're seeing the exact opposite occur. The closer we look at the Harris County Sheriff's Department investigation, the more we see Colleen Barnett's case crumble before our eyes. Barnett threw everything she had at Sandy, which wasn't much. She didn't call the lead detective to the stand as a witness. She didn't call a DNA expert. At best, she convinced the jury that Sandy Melgar could have killed her husband, with zero evidence proving that she actually did. Colleen Barnett won this conviction by spinning nothing into speculation of guilt. Let me give you an example. Sandy's defense team called computer forensic expert Eric Delvin to the stand to testify about what he found on Sandy and Jim's computers and phones. Delvin's testimony was very clear. There was nothing incriminating on the phones of the Melgar's electronic devices. No human used the computers or phones between 9 p.m. on the night of the murder and 4.30 p.m. the next day, when the couple was found by Herman and family. He also testified that he searched the devices for a list of keywords that included murder, knots, murder for hire, bindings, self-binding, closet, door, stabbing, knife, etc. Basically, every word and word combination that he would expect someone who pre-planned this murder to have searched for. And he came up with goose eggs. Nothing. The evidence that came out during his testimony was simple. Sandy didn't use the computer or phone during the hours that she said she was locked in the closet and she had never so much as typed any of these incriminating words into her computer. Which is odd for someone who supposedly spent weeks planning this murder, according to Barnett. But then Colleen steps up for cross-examination. Does she attack or question Delvin's findings? Nope. Instead, she begins cartwheeling the evidence into what she considered proof of guilt. She asks Delvin if the fact that no human used the computer during those hours could be because that person was too busy cleaning up and staging a crime scene. She then asked the computer expert if someone needs to research or be an expert to tie knots. She even went so far as to bring out one of the knots that Sandy was bound with and hands it to Delvin. She asked him if tying the knot would require some level of expertise. He, of course, being a computer forensic expert and not a Boy Scout troop leader, didn't know. Once again, evidence of innocence is spun into speculation of guilt, which was Barnett's theme throughout the entire trial. Barnett did, however, call in one expert witness, Celestina Rossi, a blood spatter analyst from Montgomery County. Texas Ranger James Holland is a legendary interrogator. They call him the serial killer whisperer. You can't hide those indications, and that's why yesterday I knew that you did it. 
But now, shocking interrogation tapes reveal how the super cop really operates. And that's why they asked me to come in, because I'm special. From something else, The Marshall Project and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Smokescreen. Just say you're sorry. Listen and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. According to Rossi's report, she wasn't contacted to complete a blood spatter analysis on Jim's murder until July 11, 2017, about a month before the trial and four and a half years after the murder. A few things jumped out at me when I read this. First of all, why wait almost five years to request the analysis? I checked the discovery. No other blood spatter analysis was ever performed, which I thought was a little odd for a stabbing case with zero evidence indicating the defendant. I would think the police or a prosecutor would leave no stone unturned, trying to find something. In any case, the 11th hour request aside, I also found, find I should say, it's strange that Rossi gets the nod here. She doesn't work for Harris County. She works at the Montgomery County Crime Laboratory. Surely there must be at least one person working in Harris County, the larger of the two, trained to assess blood spatter evidence. I mean, Harris County has over eight times the population of Montgomery County, respectively 4.6 million to 570,000. And that's not to mention the usual prosecution go-to forensic lab, the Texas Department of Public Safety. DPS was already working on this case. They did some of the DNA testing and other forensic work. But still, Barnett taps Montgomery County for the blood spatter work, a month before the trial. So before I read even a single line of Rossi's blood pattern analysis report, I'll admit, I was a little suspicious. I even reached out to Rossi to request an interview to try to set my mind at ease. She responded to my first email. She was working out of the country and said she'd get in touch the next week. The next week came and she wrote back telling me that she needed approval from her lieutenant to do any interviews. She'd already agreed to interview with Grace White of KHOU and apparently thought I was part of that team. So I reached out to the lieutenant and he declined the interview, stating that she had other work obligations. So, okay, interesting. Apparently, she was only allowed to conduct one interview. Fair enough. At this point, I was already in touch with the producers of the 2020 episode that aired this past Friday. I mentioned Rossi and suggested that they try to interview her. Turns out, she can do two interviews, which I guess is fair. I mean, they're 2020, and I'm just a random podcaster guy from Michigan. But still, something wasn't sitting right with me. After reading Rossi's report and trial testimony, and we'll get to those shortly, I was even more suspicious about why Barnett went out of the county to hire Rossi for the case. And then I heard her interview with Grace White, and let's just say it did not set my mind at ease. Let me give you a little example of what I'm talking about. These are some of the quotes from Rossi during her recent interview with KHOU. Quote, the blood evidence doesn't point to Sandra per se in that she's not bloody, end quote. Okay, I agree with that. Right off the bat, the blood evidence does not implicate anyone, really. No one was found with Jim's blood on them, not Sandy or anyone else. At best, an objective spatter analysis can tell you how the crime was committed. But without any corresponding or corroborating evidence, it cannot tell you who committed the crime. Then Rossi, in my opinion, starts to go off the rails. She seems to be working for Barnett's PR machine rather than explaining the evidence. These are some of her quotes when she begins to spin the evidence to point towards Sandy. None of it actually does point towards Sandy, but she's trying to explain how it doesn't rule her out either. These are direct quotes from her interview. The problem is that we have this 14-hour window when it supposedly occurs and when she's found. What could you do in 12 hours? 14 hours. I could drive to Denver, Colorado in 14 hours. I could definitely drive to Dallas and back. There was no clothes in the dumpster, you know, or in her trash. It's like, okay, well, she had, you know, I mean, she could have driven to Austin. She could have driven to Dallas. She could have driven to Galveston. She could have driven to Louisiana. I mean, we don't know. You could have done six loads of laundry in that amount of time. You could have taken one set of clothes and washed them, you know, six times. You can take a shower. You can scrub your nails. These are interesting theories. Maybe Sandy drove to Louisiana to get rid of her bloody clothes and the missing items from the house. 
although the police reports state that surveillance footage from the camera across the street shows that no vehicle pulled in or out of the Melgar's driveway. But really, that's neither here nor there. Since Rossi is a blood spatter expert, it really isn't her job to assess possible scenarios or theories, especially ones that don't involve the actual blood. She's only supposed to be analyzing the spatter evidence. Nonetheless, what we're seeing here is a perfect example of a suspect or theory-driven investigation. A proper, objective, evidence-driven investigation should be clear, concise, and without speculation or bending of the facts to fit a theory. For example, the blood indicates X, Y, and Z. But instead, we're hearing Rossi try to stretch the evidence to fit Colleen Barnett's theory. The same can be said of her statement that Sandy could have taken a shower or scrubbed her nails. Where? Where would she have done this? Carpenter testified that the sinks and showers were checked for blood and stated in no uncertain terms that there was no evidence that anyone cleaned up blood in the house. And again, these speculations and assumptions are not for Rossi to make. She's supposed to be analyzing the blood spatter. As I was listening to Rossi's interview, I kept asking myself, why? Why is she doing this? I worked as an expert witness myself and have written and defended many investigative reports. For years, I taught fire officers and fire investigators how to write reports and how to testify. And rule number one is simple. Only report the facts and what you can actually prove through the evidence. Never overstate your case and never, ever speculate. So why is Rossi bending over backwards to make Barnett's case? As I was listening to the KHOU interview, I had a thought. Do Rossi and Barnett have a personal relationship? Are they communicating about how to present the case to the media? And are they speaking about our podcast specifically? They both seem more than willing to go on the record with anyone who they know won't challenge their statements, but seem to have no interest in an interview where they will be asked to defend their positions against the actual facts of the case. And for the record, I reached back out to Barnett's media relations person a week and a half ago requesting the follow-up interview promised by Barnett the last time she was on the show. You'll remember that I asked her if she'd be willing to come back on the show after I had a full set of case documents and more of the facts, but no response. So, I had this theory. I was thinking that Rossi and Barnett are working together to control the narrative on this case. So, I decided to put the theory to the test. At that point, I had not told anyone that I was going to be appearing on Friday's 2020 episode. I was intentionally keeping it a secret just for this occasion. So, I sent an email to Rossi with a second request for an interview. In the email, I mentioned that I would also be appearing on the 2020 episode. I hit send, and then waited. And guess what happened next? Within the hour, Colleen Barnett, according to my sources, was aware of the fact that I was going to be on the episode, and she was furious. worked hard for what you have your money your assets your 401k and home isn't it all worth protecting nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft lifelock ultimate plus helps protect your finances with up to three million dollars in reimbursement lifelock alerts you to identity threats you might miss and if your identity is stolen your dedicated u.s-based restoration specialist will work to fix it let lifelock help protect what you've worked so hard for save 25 percent off your first year on lifelock ultimate plus at lifelock.com aware terms apply During her recent interview, Celestina Rossi spends most of her time trying to spin the facts to match Barnett's theory. But when it really comes down to the brass tacks, the actual blood evidence is not only no help to the prosecution, but it's actually in direct conflict with what Barnett sold the jury. In Colleen's closing arguments, she demonstrates to the jury how Sandy lured Jim into the chair in the bedroom with the promise of sex play. According to Barnett, this is when Sandy began the attack by slashing the knife across Jim's chest and neck. She demonstrated this to the jury. And she's also pushed this theory out on Dateline NBC, Deadly Women, our show, KHOU, and, of course, I haven't seen it yet because I'm currently out of the country, but I can only assume on 2020 as well. Barnett claims that Rossi backs her up on this. She's quoted in her interview with KHOU stating, quote, That's where my blood expert said the first stab wounds were, was when he was in the chair. End quote. But, according to Rossi, that's not true. This is what she actually had to say about the chair. 
From her KHOU interview, here's Celestina Rossi. Quote, The state believes based on what they had, the incident started in the chair. And nothing that I have says that. You know all, everything that I have says that he's facing outward. He's in the closet facing outward. And then you have, because the only, the only injury he has out of all the stab wounds and cuts that affects an artery vein or vessel is right there in his thumb. And I know that the staining on the back of the chair is caused from, you know, a hydraulic pressure um, from a vein vessel or artery. And so I can place him inside the closet, you know, with his thumb oriented towards the chair and then everything I have right there at the threshold and then back in the closet. So um, based on what I can do with reconstruction and blood stain, I have him at or in the closet. Nothing I have puts him in the chair. End quote. Hmm. It doesn't sound to me like Barnett's own blood spatter expert, handpicked from another county, agrees with the scenario that she used at trial to send Sandy Melgar away to prison for 27 years. Now, don't get me wrong. I agree with Rossi's statement here. In fact, based on her report and her responses to questions about the actual blood spatter, I'd say she's pretty much spot on. She's good at her job. The problem I have with Rossi is that she has gone far beyond the scope of her expertise in order to bolster Barnett's narrative. Her conclusions about the blood on the chair were no surprise to me. I've been saying for months that there's no way that the attack started in the chair in the bedroom. As I've stated several times, there's no corresponding spatter or cast-off in the bedroom to indicate Jim was attacked in that chair, and the spatter pattern indicates at some point the chair was actually tipped over onto the ground. So now let's jump into Rossi's actual blood pattern analysis report for a minute to see what she actually found based on the evidence without the spin. The report is only six pages long, but there's only about a page and a half of analysis. The rest is a cover letter quoting the investigative reports and pictures. The full report is available on our website for viewing. So there really aren't any surprises here. She describes the transfer and swipe patterns on the wall from Jim leaning against it and slumping over to his left. But then on page four, Rossi confirms something that myself and a few listeners have noted a few months ago. From the report, quote, between the transfer stain and the swipe pattern, there are two linear cast-off patterns and both have directionality from right to left and are traveling upward, end quote. This finding is significant. So first of all, let me explain what cast-off is. Most of you probably already know this, but cast-off is a spatter pattern created by someone swinging a bloody instrument. In this case, the attacker stabbed Jim with a knife and the knife was bloody as the unsub pulled the knife back to make another strike or stab. As the knife is jerked quickly up and back, the blood sort of flings off the blade onto the wall. The directionality and the proximity to Jim's body and the floor, in my opinion, paint a pretty clear picture of what happened. During this part of the fight, Jim was laying on his back and leaning against the wall. So he's sort of in between a seated position and laying flat. You might describe his position as slumped. The two cast-off patterns begin on the wall at about his right shoulder and continue up and to the left, meaning the knife was pulled out of Jim's body and the offender recoiled it back to their left, Jim's right. This happened twice, creating two cast-off patterns. So what can we learn from these patterns? To answer that, we need to go back to the ME's report. Jim suffered 31 sharp force injuries, but only seven of those wounds were categorized as stab wounds. These were wounds numbered 3, 4, 5, 6, 9, 10, and 13. All seven stab wounds are located from the midline of Jim's torso and to the right side of his chest. All of the evidence, including Rossi's interpretation of the evidence, indicates that Jim was face-to-face -face with his attacker. So Jim's right would be the attacker's left. There are also only two blunt force injuries to Jim's torso, two large bruises on his upper right chest. Again, this would be on the attacker's left. And let's not forget about the big gash on Jim's right hand, the defensive wound from when he grabbed the blade, his right, attacker's left. Combine the facts that all seven stab wounds are on Jim's right, the only two bruises to his torso are along his right side, the defensive cut is on his right hand, and the two cast-off patterns originate at his right shoulder and proceed up and to his right, the attacker's left. And I think we can draw a pretty clear conclusion. Jim's attacker was left-handed. The lack of cast-off patterns also tells a story. 
Jim had 12 sharp force injuries to his chest and abdomen. Barnett made the point that since these wounds are quite shallow in relation to the length of the knife used, the killer must be weak, you know, like Sandy. Oh yeah, Sandy's right-handed, by the way, in case you were wondering. But I think the fact that we have 12 attempts to stab Jim in the torso and only two cast-off patterns confirms something that I said months ago. Jim had a hold of the killer's wrist. The cast-off patterns indicate that on two occasions, the offender was able to stab Jim and recoil the knife back quickly to prepare for another blow. The rest of the wounds could be shallow because Jim was grasping their wrists so tightly that they couldn't recoil the blade, which should have left some pretty nasty bruises on the, likely left-handed, offender's wrist. Another noteworthy part of Rossi's report is what isn't in it. Both Colleen and Rossi in their recent interviews made the point that the fact that Jim never went for his gun is an indicator that Sandy is the killer. Rossi said something along the lines of, you would never shoot your spouse, even if they're attacking you with a knife. This is also part of Barnett's narrative. Now, I'm sure you remember my assessment of the blood spatter. I pointed out what I consider to be a massive piece of evidence. There are clearly transfer blood stains on the closet rod, the shelf, and on the shirt sleeves above the shelf right in front of the gun. I think that the blood on the rod and the shelf could be explained away, but that would be difficult. The transfer stain wraps around the rod. That can't happen from something just brushing against it. Something wrapped around it. And in my opinion, the only reasonable explanation for this would be Jim grabbing it with a bloody hand. There are also spatter marks on the wall under the shelf with a downward directionality, which makes sense because Jim had a massive gash on his hand that severed an artery. Now, the jury foreman, who also has agreed to interview with anyone who won't challenge him but refuses to interview her on our show, posted on our Facebook page that Rossi, quote, proved that the blood on the shelf and rod came from Jim hitting his head on them as he fell, as indicated by the four wounds on the back and top of Jim's head. Of course, we all know that that's likely not accurate. As I just said, the transfer pattern wraps around the rod. Not to mention that for this to be true, Jim would have had to have stand up and fell down in the exact same place four different times. And we've discovered that those fork-shaped wounds match up perfectly with the molding on the wall right behind Jim's head. And oh yeah, the medical examiner also testified that the molding was likely the culprit of those wounds as well. In any case, the rod and shell for one thing, but the transfer blood on the shirt sleeves is quite another. There's no blood stain connecting the rod and the shelf to the shirt sleeves, and the transfer patterns wrap around those sleeves as well. Now, I'm not a blood spatter expert, never claimed to be, but I've stayed at enough Holiday Inn Expresses to see the most likely scenario here. Jim went for the gun, obviously, he grabbed the closet rod with one hand to pull himself up and reach for the gun with the other. And if I'm right about that, according to Rossi's logic, we can rule Sandy out. Because you would never shoot your spouse, even if he's trying to kill you. Let's get back into the report. I was curious to see what Rossi had to say about the transfer stains on the shirt sleeves. Nothing. Doesn't even mention them. Like they weren't even there. She does note the blood on the rod and shelf, though. From the report, quote, On the top side of the front of the closet rod and the front edge of the shelf, there is a transfer stain. On the wall behind the closet rod and shelf, in the space between them are circular spatter stains. Further down the wall are elliptical stains with downward directionality, end quote. All of this is accurate, and in fact, in my opinion, all of her findings are accurate regarding what she sees in the crime scene photos. She just, much like Maurice Carpenter, left out the parts that were inconvenient for the prosecution. She goes on to talk about the dining chair that was in the bedroom outside the closet. The one that Barnett said her blood expert, Rossi, concluded was the location where the attack began. From Rossi's report, quote, The pattern on the kitchen chair seat, seat back, carpet below the chair, and the white sheets on the bed has characteristics of a projected pattern originating from the closet area, possibly caused by the incised wound of the palm of the right hand. End quote. So what she's saying here is that the blood on the chair and the sheets didn't come from Jim being attacked while he was on the chair, like Barnett told the jury. Rather, this blood was projected out onto the chair from inside the closet. She thinks this could have come from the wound on Jim's hand. But she doesn't mention that some of the stains appear to have dripped down onto the chair when it was laying on its back. 
I have no way of knowing if she just left those out or if she just disagrees with both mine and Jim Clemente's opinions on these spots. But her assessment of the white stool is pretty spot on in my opinion. She says that some of the blood stains are drip stains and that there, quote, appears to be a secondary event with a swipe and or wipe pattern, end quote, on the top and side of the stool, and another swipe pattern on a different side. My read on the stool is that it was tossed out of the closet at some point, before Jim got in there. Then, after the deed was done, the killers set the knife on it while they cleaned themselves up. Blood is dripping off of them while they stood there. Then they use either the white shirt or towels to wipe the knife off while it was on the stool. Rossi's assessment seems to support that theory. Other items left out of the report that would have gutted Barnett's narrative were the spatter patterns on the phone cord bindings and the red rope. She doesn't get anything wrong, she just ignores it. Which is a good thing for Colleen, because it would be tough to convince the jury that Sandy tied Jim up after the murder to make it look like a home invasion if the blood expert had shared the fact that the spatter patterns on the bindings matches the patterns on his body. Rossi concludes a report with the following. The white stool appears to be either out of place, moved from another location, or contained something capable of creating a void on the top side of the stool that was neither identified nor collected. After the victim received wounds to the head and neck, based on the linear contusions on his upper back and head, it's most plausible that he contacted the lower closet rod and shelf, causing the transfer stain to the front of the rod and shelf, creating a cessation cast-off pattern with directional spatter stains above, behind, and below the rod and shelf. At some point, the victim's head came into contact with the wall below the closet rod. A void between the transfer stains and the swipe patterns indicate the victim's head was away from the wall before coming into contact with the wall again, causing the swipe pattern from right to left and downward to his final resting position. The two linear cast-off patterns that have upward directionality from right to left indicate that an object was moving upward from right to left, low to the floor and within the confines of the closet. So Rossi's report is really pretty basic. In the overall conclusion section, she makes just four points. The blood on the chair and sheet came from blood projected from inside the closet. The white stool was likely moved there from another location, or at some point had something on it that could create a void in the pattern, like a shirt, for example. She describes the cast-off patterns that we discussed earlier, but notice the contrast between that section, where she just states the fact that there is in fact a cast-off pattern, and the closet rod paragraph. She doesn't insert any opinion about what the most plausible explanation is regarding the cast-off a left-handed attacker, or at least someone attacking with their left hand. That would ruin Barnett's case. But for the closet rod and shelf, we get a, quote, most plausible theory. A theory that does not involve Jim reaching for his gun. The bottom line is that Rossi's report can be summed up as follows. The attack happened in the closet. Jim was not stabbed outside of the closet or in the chair and the killer would have had blood on them. That's really it as far as evidentiary value. And yet, this is how she ended her interview with KHOU. Grace White asks her, quote, So in your mind, there's no doubt that Sandra is guilty. And Rossi's response? There's no doubt. What in the actual fuck? Let me loop back for a second. She can prove that the attack happened in the closet, and that the killer would have blood on them, Sandy didn't have blood on her, and based on that, she has no doubt that Sandy is guilty. Like I said, just another cog in the Barnett PR machine. Now that we've heard what Celestina Rossi concluded in her blood pattern analysis report, let's next move on to her testimony at trial. The source documents that this testimony is based on was six pages long, a page and a half of which contained her analysis, which ended with a four-paragraph conclusion. Those four observations somehow translated into 132 pages of trial transcript. I'm going to hit on the highlights, but the entire document is available on our website. Per the usual routine, Barnett has Rossi go through her resume. She started her education with an associate's degree in business administration, then became a police dispatcher. From there, she moved into the jail and then on to the police academy. She was a patrol officer, and in 2002, she moved into the crime lab. 
Last year, when she was asked to evaluate the blood evidence in this case, Rossi had worked in the crime lab for 15 years, and she was teaching college-level forensic courses. And there's several pages of Rossi listing papers she's published and awards she's won. You can read them in the transcript. But for the sake of brevity, I would stipulate that Celestina Rossi is clearly very good at her job. According to Rossi, she was brought into the case because the M.E.s in this case, Drs. Paneri and Hayden, suggested that Barnett reach out to her. It also turns out that Rossi knows our buddy Maurice. He was one of her students in a class she taught. And interestingly enough, she asked for all of the police reports before she performed her spatter analysis. I'm not sure if this is typical protocol, but it strikes me as unnecessary and has a huge potential to bias the analyst. The blood patterns mean what the blood patterns mean. The autopsy report certainly would be useful, but I'm not sure why it would matter what the police think happened. I'm really just thinking out loud here, but this is the precise reason that when Jim Clemente works on any of our cases, he doesn't want to know anything about any suspects. He doesn't want to know any of the crime scene investigators' conclusions. He only wants to look at the crime scene and hear about victimology. He's always taught me to let the evidence guide you. Theories come at the end of the investigation, not at the beginning. On page 27 of the transcript, Max Seacrest addresses the judge. Apparently, Colleen failed to provide the defense with Rossi's report before the trial. From the transcript, Seacrest. Apparently, she's written a report, and I've never received a copy of the report. So now we're in the midst of testimony from a specialized witness, and I haven't seen anything from this person. I guess I could ask for a continuance, but I'm not going to do it. But I would ask that the report be tendered to me so I can be reading it during the direct examination. And the judge agrees. Barnett spends a lot of time having Rossi explain what the different types of blood spatter look like and what causes them. Then, on page 32, we finally start getting into the specifics of this case. The analysis begins with the dining chair. Rossi starts describing the different stains on the chair, and then Barnett has the chair and stool brought into the courtroom. Now, at this point, I'm on the edge of my seat reading the transcript. In her interview a few weeks ago, Rossi very clearly states, quote, nothing she has puts Jim in the chair, end quote. But Barnett clearly states in her interview that, quote, that's where her blood expert said the first stab wounds were, when Jim was in the chair. So what did Rossi actually say at the trial? Well, I'll tell you what she didn't say. She didn't say Jim was sitting in the chair and was attacked from behind. So in order to demonstrate the possibility of how the blood got onto the chair, Rossi uses blue tape to diagram the area between the bed and the closet on the floor of the courtroom. Next, she explains that the only injury on Jim that involved an artery that could have projected the blood onto the chair was the defensive wound on his hand at the base of his thumb. Now, let's go ahead and add my own thoughts here. While that is the only injury that could have projected the blood onto the chair, I don't believe it's the only explanation as to how the blood could be projected like that. But in any case, Rossi goes on to explain that because the drip stains on the carpet stop at the door threshold, Jim had to be inside the closet when he received the cut to his hand that projected the blood onto the chair. And interestingly enough, Barnett herself is playing the part of Jim in the reenactment. So here's some irony for you. The woman who repeatedly scoffs at the idea that Sandra Melgar can't remember what happened that night can't ever seem to remember the actual facts of the case when she has a microphone in front of her. Colleen then asks Rossi if it's reasonable to assume that Jim would turn and go for his gun at the back of the closet. From the transcript. Barnett. Okay, so I turn around and get the gun. What happens after that? Rossi. Then you're exposing your back, and if I have a knife, now I have the opportunity to stab you in the back. Barnett. And have you looked at the autopsy photos? I have. Are there any stab wounds to the back? No, there's not. Nice thought but I wonder if either of them considered that maybe the attacker didn't intend on killing Jim. That maybe the knife was intended to just control him. And they, oh, I don't know, hit him on the back of the head, fracturing his skull when he was reaching for the gun rather than stab him? And maybe, just maybe, the chair was not moved around and knocked over for a sexy massage. Could it possibly have been that the killer was intending to use it to, hmm, let me think, oh, I don't know, barricade the door shut after he was tied up? Seems like I've seen something like that before.
move along, Barnett and Rossi have a discussion about the lack of blood anywhere else in the house. And we've heard this argument before. Rossi agrees that the killer would have blood on them. Then Colleen asks her, quote, Would you expect to find blood elsewhere in the house if that person has blood on them? Rossi's response, absolutely. Which I found interesting because in her KHOU interview, she goes into great depth to explain how the killer could have made it from the closet to the bathroom without leaving any blood evidence behind. Not so much absolutely anymore. But the more I think about it, the lack of blood trail is actually really important. As I've said several times, whether it was Sandy or a home invader, it doesn't matter. Someone walked away from the closet without leaving any blood behind. But let's really break this down for a minute. Let's say you're Sandy and you just murdered Jim in the closet. You have blood all over you. You're later found in the master bathroom closet without a drop of blood on your person. Anywhere. You didn't use the shower or sink to clean up, so the only place you could have washed yourself is the bathtub. Between you and the tub is light carpet, white trim, white doors, white counters, a white sink, and a white bathtub. So how do you pull this off? I say you don't. I mean, I suppose in a perfect Mission Impossible type world it's possible, but really, I don't think so. The only plausible explanation is that the killer cleaned up right there outside of the closet. Remember back to Rossi's report. The stool had swipe and white marks all over it. It even looks to me like you can see the outline of a knife in the bloodstains. So clearly some cleanup was done right there. But how and with what? In my opinion, there's only one way this is possible. There was at least one other person in the house. Someone had to bring the killer towels to clean up with. They wiped themselves down so that they didn't have blood on their hands, arms, or body right there outside the closet before they walked away. Let's hypothesize here for just a minute. Based on the evidence that we have, let's walk through two hypothetical scenarios. Scenario 1. Sandy engages in a brutal fight to the death with her husband and kills him. She stands up and is covered in blood. She's sweating, hyperventilating, shaking, and very likely crying. Even if she had planned to kill Jim, she's no psychopathic killer. Taking someone's life is extremely traumatic, especially if it's someone you spent every day of the last 32 years with. So there she stands, covered in blood, freaking out. And now, she's now alone in the house and it's the middle of the night. Does she calmly and coolly stand still and construct a plan to carefully walk to the bathroom, again without touching anything, and then clean herself off? Then get out of the tub and begin staging the crime scene? Could you do that? I don't think so. But let's consider scenario number two. There are two to four people in the house. One is left in charge of tying up Jim and barricading him in the master closet. This person, maybe a woman, holds a knife to Jim and tells him to take the stool out of the closet and lay down so they can tie him up. Just like Sandy. Jim sees an opportunity and springs to action and a fight breaks out. He reaches for the knife and ends up getting his hand sliced open. He then turns around and lunges for the gun with his bloody right hand. As he's grasping for it, he gets hit on the back of the head and collapses. He's either unconscious at this point, or the killer points a knife at him and tells him to be still or they'll kill him. He complies as they tie up his legs. Then as they move up to tie his torso with the red rope, he starts to fight back again. Suddenly, the would-be restrainer, unexpectedly, becomes a killer, literally fighting for their own life at this point. Just like Sandy in Scenario 1, this person is not a killer. They've never killed anyone before. And just like Sandy, they leave the closet shaking, hyperventilating, and yes, probably even crying. I believe this person would be, for lack of a better term, freaking the hell out. One of their accomplices comes to the killer's aid and brings them towels to clean themselves up. A few minutes are spent right outside the closet as the killer removes their bloody shirt and wipes themselves off with a towel as their accomplice tries to calm them down. They decide it's time to get the hell out of there. The non-bloody accomplice takes the knife, towels, and shirt into the bathroom and puts them in the water, grabs a shirt out of the laundry basket or a closet for the killer, and off they go. Which of those two scenarios sounds more plausible to you? Next, Rossi moves away from the blood as Barnett asks her if the scene looks staged to her. Since Rossi does have experience in this field, she's qualified to speak on the topic. She basically says the same types of things that Carpenter testified to. There was no broken glass, nothing was reported stolen, which, as we know, is false. Not to mention the fact that if this was a home invasion burglary, and murder wasn't the intention, as Jim Clemente assessed, we wouldn't expect much to be stolen. The plan would have been aborted the minute someone died. They were just getting started. 
Then Rossi points out that there was this brutal fight and there was a lit candle on the nightstand that wasn't tipped over, right after she said that the entire fight took place inside the closet. She also says that there's no evidence that the chair or stool were knocked over. Again, Jim and I both disagree with that. And we can see the carpet marks on the floor, so we know the chair wasn't in the position where it was usually kept. And I'll also add to that that in her own report, she said that she believes the stool had been moved. But that's neither here nor there. She essentially says the crime scene looks staged to her based on her experience and training. Barnett shows Rossi a close-up photo of the bloody safe handle and asks her if there is a latent fingerprint in the blood. Rossi says no, and after looking at it, I tend to agree with her. She describes the blood stain as a swipe pattern. But then again, we should all be asking ourselves, why would Sandy touch the safe with bloody hands after killing Jim? More staging, I guess. Anyway, direct examination ends with Barnett presenting Rossi with Sandy's wrist bindings. She points out how stretchy they are, and that if it was tied around Sandy's wrists, that it would just fall off because the loops are so big. Max Seacrest begins cross-examination about how you would expect Mac to begin cross-examination. First words out of the gate, quote, Miss Rossi, where you been? Sir, where you been? Where have I been? Yes, ma'am. This murder took place on December 22nd, 23rd, 2012, and you're first called into this case, what, like 15 days ago? I believe it was a month ago now, sir. Oh, 30 days ago. So you were contacted first time 30 days ago after this case had been pending over four and a half years? Yes, sir. Okay, so here's the thing. I love Mac's sarcastic style. You might have noticed that I tend to operate in a similar manner when I smell bullshit. But after seeing the lack of evidence here and knowing the jury voted to convict, I can't help but wonder if Mac's southern charm wasn't exactly well received by them. I would hope that personalities didn't trump the evidence, or lack of evidence as it were in this case, but something swayed the jurors. After his usual Mac-style pleasantries, Seacrest immediately goes on the offensive, but not about the blood evidence, about Rossi's testimony that the scene was staged. When you read through the staging section of direct examination, you'll see that Rossi testifies with confidence that based on all the factors and evidence of the crime scene, she can determine that the crime scene was staged. But here in Cross, Mac starts asking her a lot of questions about the evidence, a lot of questions that she doesn't know the answers to. What exactly was reported stolen in the house? Was the garage door open? What do you mean you think you read it in a report? Things like that. He pretty much demonstrates to the jury that she made all of those claims in direct without really having anything more than a cursory knowledge of the case. But Rossi isn't shaken. She's a state's witness and she's protecting the state's case. Here's a little bit of what I'm talking about from the transcript. Mac, you're certainly qualified to give an opinion about a lot of things with respect to any alleged staging of a home invasion. The truth of the matter is, it's merely an opinion, and in fact, you could be wrong about that. Fair statement? Rossi, it is my opinion that the scene is staged. Seacrest, and in truth and fact, you could be wrong about that. Rossi, given the totality of the scene, my opinion is that the scene was staged. Seacrest, so you're telling me that you're infallible and you could not be wrong. Rossi, that's all I'm saying, sir. Now keep in mind that this exchange occurred right after Rossi testified that there are no peer-reviewed studies on staged crime scenes and that it's all just based on opinion. To lay the foundation for this line of questioning, Mac asked Rossi if it's possible for two different seasoned investigators to look at the same crime scene and come to different conclusions. Rossi agrees, but then refuses to admit that it's possible for her opinion to be wrong. Again, after she had just been called on the carpet for not actually knowing most of the facts of the case. As Mac moves into the blood evidence, Rossi again confirms that Jim had to be in the closet when the blood projected out onto the chair and sheets. Then as he continues the questioning, Rossi starts to describe a lot of drip stains on the floor around Jim's body and leading to the safe. This would obviously be blood dripping off of the offender after Jim is down, and it's also an indicator that before the unsub cleans themselves up, and before the blood dries on them, they went to the safe and tried to open it. Let's again try to imagine a scenario where Sandy immediately goes for the safe after stabbing her husband to death. Next, Max circles back to the blood trail out of the house. In direct, Rossi makes a big to-do about the fact that the killer should have left a blood trail or at least left blood on the doorknobs and doorframes on their way out. 
Seacrest has her basically restate that fact, then asks her if any of Jim's blood was found in the bathroom. There wasn't any, other than on the knife in the tub, which is exactly what he was getting at. We know for a fact that someone took the bloody knife from the closet to the tub and didn't leave a single bloody footprint or smudge or anything in between the two, effectively making the argument moot about there being no blood evidence on the way out of the house. The killer had, again, obviously cleaned up right there in front of the closet before they left the area. He also makes a point that if there were more than one offender, one of them, who didn't stab Jim to death, could have been the one opening and closing the doors. Next, Seacrest attacks Rossi's testimony about Sandy's bindings. But as soon as he brings the topic up, Rossi starts to backpedal, stating that analyzing the knots wasn't her role in the case. This, of course, is occurring after she happily testified about the bindings when Barnett wanted to talk about them. And this is where we get another series of Colleen's I object because this is devastating to my case exchanges. From the transcript, Seacrest, did that undergo a technical review process by another crime scene investigator? Yes or no? Barnett, judge, that was not a scientific experiment. I was asking her opinion about a knot as a witness. Judge, what is your legal objection, Miss Barnett? Barnett, that this is an inappropriate witness. It's outside the scheme of her testimony as an expert on crime scenes. I found that part amusing because Colleen is the one that asked her to testify in the bindings to begin with. And the judge agreed. Overruled. Mac then gets two more sentences out before she goes at it again. Barnett, honor I object. This has nothing to do with the science. It's tying a knot and whether or not the judge cuts her off. Miss Barnett, what is your legal objection? Barnett, that is not relevant. And again, she's the one who brought it up, which is why the judge responds, all right, that's overruled. Colleen doesn't like that, so she responds to the judge with, then I would object that this is not the proper witness for that. I would object that it's, she's being asked to form an opinion of something that's not science and she's not testifying about. And one more time for the hat trick, Colleen, you asked her to give an opinion on the knots in direct examination. And again, for the third time now, the judge overrules her objection. And this whole disaster ends with Mac getting Rossi to admit that she was not qualified to give any opinions on any knots. And also that she gave her opinion without ever speaking to the one person who actually knew how Sandy was bound, Herman Melgar. Rossi says that she doesn't remember reading the transcripts of Herman's interview when he clearly stated that the bindings were so tight that he couldn't get them untied and had to cut them off. And then cross-examination ends with her agreeing that Herman would be the best source to find out how Sandy was actually bound. Redirect and recross were short and sweet. Colleen steps up first. In light of all the analogy the defense attorney has given you, in light of the cross-examination, does that change your mind about your opinion on this case? Answer, no it does not. Question, in any way? Answer, no ma'am. Question, does it give you any doubt about what your opinion is on this case? Answer, it does not. Barnett, pass the witness. Then Max Seacrest steps right up to the podium. Miss Rossi, I am not at all surprised that I can do nothing to change your opinion. Barnett, objection to argumentative. The court, sustained. Seacrest, no further questions. I believe Mac was being completely honest when he said that he's not surprised that nothing he could say would change Rossi's opinion. Over the last few weeks, I've spoken to several Texas attorneys about Rossi. Every single one of them gave me the same response. And shockingly, they all used the exact same term to describe her. I'm not going to repeat it because it's pretty vulgar. Essentially, what they told me was that Celestina Rossi is a bought and paid for state's witness. As of last year, when this trial occurred, she had testified 26 times, according to her own testimony at this trial. One time, she testified for the defense in a post-conviction case. It was a case out of Alabama. But that one sort of gets canceled out because she testified for the state in the same case years before when the man was wrongfully convicted in the first place. In all 24 of her other court appearances, Rossi testified for the state. And in every case, believe it or not, her conclusion supported the prosecution's case. The bottom line is this. Rossi was called upon to evaluate the blood spatter in this case. Her conclusions in her report were very basic and simple. Jamie was killed in the closet, 
and the killer would have had blood on them. That's it. That's the entirety of what can be proven by the blood evidence. Sandra Melgar was found without a drop of blood on her, and there was zero evidence that she had cleaned herself up on the crime scene. There is no way that any reasonable, objective person could conclude from that evidence that Sandy is guilty. But that didn't stop Celestina Rossi from doing exactly that. Truth and Justice is an NBI Studios production and is distributed by Wondery. Mike Bussing is our executive producer and Shane Yoder is our sound engineer. All music for the show was created, composed, and scored by PutThemInASong.com, who also mixed and mastered this episode. Our Season 6 logo was also created by Shane Yoder of PutThemInASong.com. Our banner images and type font across all of our logos was created by Tate Krupa of Red Swan Graphic Design. You can find more of Tate's work on Etsy. Thank you to Katie Ross of CreatedInTandem.com for designing, creating, managing, and maintaining our website, Truth and Justice Pod, where you can view all photos and documents discussed in every episode. Thank you to our transcription team, Britta Bliss, Sarah Colby, Rachel Timberman, and Liz Rose. And as always, thank you to all of you for all of your engagement and support. If you like the show and you'd like to support us, you can do so in a number of ways. To financially support the show, you can go to Patreon.com slash TruthAndJustice. On the Patreon page, you can pledge as little as $1 per month, and we also have reward levels on the Patreon that include access to behind-the-scenes videos of the tapings of our Friday follow-up episodes, Truth and Justice Army t-shirts and hats, and even the opportunity to co-host one of our Friday follow-up episodes. You can also help us out by going to iTunes and leaving us a five-star rating and review. And lastly, you can always support us by supporting the companies that sponsor this program. But the most important thing that you can do is engage in the investigations. You can keep in touch with us through our email at theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or join in on the conversation on the Truth and Justice Podcast fans page. For all of you tweeters, you can connect with us on Twitter. The show's handle is at truthjusticepod, and my personal Twitter handle is at bobruftruth. And for more personal interactions, feel free to follow me on Instagram at truthjusticepod. Don't forget that we always have our 24-7 voicemail line open for questions, comments, or tips on our cases. That phone number is 269-224-2833. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, I'm signing off. I'm Bob Ruff, and this has been Truth and Justice. Truth and Justice.